We've been a few weeks now in this series that we're calling All I Want for Christmas. We're talking about grace. We're talking about God giving us exactly what we need, but what we do not deserve. About us being willing to give other people what they don't deserve. We've said that, that grace is the something missing in our world. It's missing in our lives much of the time. It's missing in our relationships. And it's a challenge to extend grace to others because we live in a world that tells us, get them before they get you. You know, um, do unto others exactly as they have done unto me. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You disrespect me, I'll disrespect you. You gossip about me, I'll gossip about you. You don't like me, I don't like you. One of the funniest things I ever heard Dennis Miller say was he was so insecure, he got upset when he realized the people he hated didn't like him. <laughs> Many of us were raised in religious environments where, or, or in churches where we were taught that God was going to get us, that he was going to do unto us exactly like we'd done unto others. Or maybe we were taught that our relationship with God is kind of like a contract, right? I mean, if you will, then I will. And if, and if, and if you don't, then I won't. And if, and if you'll do this nine times, I'll do this two times. And, but the reason Christ came, the reason that God became a human being and lives among us is so that God could re-gift us with His grace. Christmas, we celebrate the reintroduction of grace back into the relationship between us and God. Christmas was God's way of announcing, because of Jesus, I will no longer do unto you as you deserve for me to do unto you. Because of Jesus and the gift of grace and the gift of righteousness that you get because of your faith in Him, I can now give you exactly what you do not deserve. Grace means that through Jesus, we have a right standing before God. Not based on our performance. Based on Jesus' performance. Not based on our obedience, based on Jesus' obedience. Not based on our ability to be good enough, but based on His perfection. And the choice is for us to receive that gift. To receive the no-strings-attached gift of a right standing with God. And yes, it sounds too good to be true, but that's what makes it grace. At Christmas, God gave us the most expensive gift that He could ever give us. He gave us exactly what we needed the most and deserved the least. And that means we have a relationship with God now that is unconditional. Our sins are forgiven. All we have to do is receive the gift of the right standing with Him. But that choice is ours. To receive it or not to receive it. Today we're going to look at a crucial question. Maybe the most important question anybody asks you today. Maybe this whole week. 
What do we do? What, what do us forgiven, accepted, grace-covered, loved people, what do we do about all the unforgiving, ungraceful, unaccepting, unloving people in our lives? What do we do? We've received this, this free gift of grace, this right standing before God. Not based on what we've done, but based on what was done for us. So now, what are we supposed to do? What do we do with all these people in our lives who are unloving and un, ungraceful and unforgiving and unaccepting? And here's the deal. We already know what to do, don't we? I mean, if all we've ever done is just kind of hang around the church... If all we've ever done is hang out in the church foyer drinking the free coffee and scarfing the donuts, we know the answer. Right? We know what to do. We're to do for others what our Heavenly Father has done for us. Man, that doesn't come naturally, does it? It doesn't for me, and maybe not for you. I mean, I'm a Christian. I got saved when I was nine years old. I'm a pastor. It is hard for me. I know that God has given me what I don't deserve, but I still have a hard time giving you what you don't deserve. Man, those people are out there, aren't they? They're in our families and our churches and our circle of friends. They're where we work. People who don't forgive. People who hold on to, to, to grudges, who hold on to every slight, who won't respond to us when we reach out to them. So what do we do? What do we who are forgiven and accepted and grace-covered and loved, how do we react? How do we respond to those people? Well, as He always does, Jesus has the answer. If you'll turn over to the Gospel of John, the 13th chapter. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John is the fourth gospel in the New Testament. If you get over into Acts or Romans, you've gone too far. You need to go back to the left a little bit. And this chapter in, in John's story of Jesus' life, that's what the Gospels are, this is the beginning of the end. Because from the events that we're going to talk about right now, in less than 24 hours, Jesus will have been gone on trial, gone to the cross. He will have died there and been buried in the tomb. Jesus knows this. His followers do not. In fact, there's a lot of things his followers don't know because what we've got here in chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16 is the most extensive single teaching of Jesus that we have recorded for us anywhere in the Scripture. He just teaches and teaches and teaches. And, and some, of the, some of the most important lessons we could ever learn as followers of Christ are contained in those four chapters of the Gospel of John. And he begins with some words that must have shaken his followers to their very core. We're going to pick up in verse 34. Jesus says, So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. And you know what? I think when, when Jesus said, I've got a new commandment for you. I think all his followers grabbed their notebooks. I've got to write this down. This is new. I've got to get this one. All right, go ahead, Jesus. 
love each other. What? That's not new. Love each other. I, I know that one. That, there's nothing new about that. How's that a new commandment? We do the same thing. We're like, Jesus, I got that one. I mean, I got it. I don't need to write that down. I'm good with loving each other. I mean, I'm good at it as long as I get to pick who the each others are. My kids, they're each others. At least until they get old enough to start causing me problems. <laughs> Rebelling against what I say. My wife, she's an each other. I mean, who couldn't love Vicky? Come on. All right. <laughs> then there's my mom and dad and my in-laws and my brothers and, and their families. They're each other's. I ain't a problem loving them. I've got a handful of friends who are each other's. I, I love them. I, I got this one, Jesus. I'm living this one just as long as I get to define the each other's. And Jesus says, that's the old command. That's the, that's the old way of thinking. He, Jesus said, I'm talking about something that is new in scope. Something that is new in range. Something that is new in extent. I'm talking about love on a grander scale than you could ever imagine. See, Jesus is not telling us to love the people we already love. I mean, that would be like me telling my kids to eat junk food. You will eat that candy. And you're going to eat Little Debbie's. And you're going to have potato chips for breakfast. Oh no, Daddy, anything but that. They don't need me to tell them that. Right? Our kids don't need us to tell, uh, to, to tell them not to eat junk food. They don't need a command from us about that. They need a command from us about eating things that are good for them and healthy for them and better for them than the junk that they want to eat. Jesus says this is a new command. It falls in the category of some of the other things he taught. Like, like when he said, pray for those who persecute you. That's new. I barely pray for my family and my friends. That's, that's a new one. And when Jesus said, love your enemies. Jesus, no, 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 no. We've been taught since we were little. You love your friends, you hate your enemies. Jesus says it's a new command. It's, this is new. Love your enemies. Love your friends, yes, but love your enemies. Jesus says, I, I'm not asking you to love people who, already, who you already love. You don't need me to tell you to do that. I'm not asking you to extend grace to people who extend grace to you. That's the old teaching. I'm talking about something brand new. I'm talking about you extending to everyone else in your life the same kind of love that I've extended to you. There were some folks there who got it, I think. Matthew was there. And Matthew was one of those hated tax collectors. 
Well, it's, it's just hard for me. You think we hate the IRS? You, that's nothing. He was, a, he was considered a thief and a traitor and a scum of the earth by his own people. Outcast. And Jesus walked right up to him and asked him to be on the team. Jesus said, come follow me. You, Matthew, despised, hated with a, with a white hot intensity by other people. You, come follow me. I think it clicked for Matthew. Oh, yeah. That kind of love. I think Peter got it. I think he got it a little bit later. But I think he came to the place where he realized that Jesus had invited him into the inner circle knowing all the time that Peter was going to deny him. I think he, he, he lived the rest of his life remembering that even after he had denied Jesus, and not once, not twice, but three times, that Jesus restored him. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Take care of my people. I think Peter had that moment where the light came on and he said, oh yeah, that kind of love. I think, this may be a stretch, but I think even Judas at some point recognized that he had been loved on a grander scale. The betrayer. Even he had been invited into the group. The scope of this love is bigger. The range is larger. The extent goes further. It's love on a grander scale. And Jesus goes on in verse 35. He says, Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. <laughs> you know, sometimes the things in the Bible are so simple that I feel stupid. Ever happened to you? Is it just me? Never happens to you, does it? Well, look at that again. What's going to prove to the world that we are his followers? It's not going to church on Sunday. It's not how much Bible we know. It's not how big a Bible we carry. It's not the, that we got notebooks full of sermon notes. It's not how much we pray or how good we pray. It's not how much money we give. It's not our WWJD bracelet or our, the fish on our car or our Christian t-shirt. Jesus says, your love will prove. Your love will prove that you're my follower. More than anything else in your life, everyone around you is going to be able to identify you. They're going to be able to point you out as one of my disciples, one of my followers, if you love one another. And I'm not talking about your kids. I'm not talking about your spouse. I'm not talking about your best friends. Jesus says, what I'm talking about is an over-the-top kind of love. It's a why in the world would you do that for them kind of love. Why would you go there with them kind of love? Why would you invite them? Why would you let them in? It's that kind of love. It's the, it's the kind of love that causes people to ask, what is up with that? Why? You're going to let who come over for Christmas? 
You're giving them that gift? Why? And our only answer is, I'm trying to extend the grace to others that my heavenly Father extended to me. We always have a choice. We have a choice. We have a choice to receive grace from God. We have a choice whether or not we're going to give that grace to other people. And what's the alternative? I mean, what if we're not willing to offer that kind of love? What if we don't want to give that kind of grace? What if we don't want to to, to give forgiveness on that scale? I want to do something I very seldom do. In a, in a message, I want to read a passage from the book, What's So Amazing About Grace, by Philip Yancey. I'm going to tell you something. If you're not familiar with Philip Yancey, you, need to, you don't need to go out today. It's going to be nasty. But tomorrow, you need to get to the store. I mean, today you can get on Amazon. And if you've <laughs> if you got the money, you need to buy everything the man ever wrote. He's that good. But here's... <clears throat> A true story he tells about a family. And I may just go ahead and put the cheaters on. I'm pretty sure I'm going to need them. Don't look at me. Look away. In 1898, Daisy was born into a working-class Chicago family, the eighth of ten children. Father barely earned enough to feed them all, and after he took up drinking, money got much scarcer. Daisy... Closing in on her 100th birthday as I write this, shudders when she talks about those days. Her father was a mean drunk, she says. Daisy used to cower in the corner, sobbing as he kicked her baby brother and sister across the linoleum floor. She hated him with all her heart. One day, the father declared that he wanted his wife out of the house by noon. All ten kids crowded around their mother, clinging to her skirt and crying, No, don't go. But their father would not back down. Holding on to her brothers and sisters for support, Daisy watched through the window as her mother walked down the sidewalk, shoulders drooping, a suitcase in each hand, growing smaller and smaller until she finally disappeared from view. Some of the children eventually rejoined their mother and some went to live with other relatives. It fell to Daisy to stay with her father. She grew up with a hard knot of bitterness inside her, a tumor of hatred over what he had done to the family. All the kids dropped out of school early in order to take jobs or join the army. And one by one, they moved away to other towns. They got married, started families, tried to put the past behind them. The father vanished. No one knew where. And no one cared. Many years later, Daisy's dad showed back up. He'd gotten sober while he was gone, and he'd gotten saved. And now he was, he was looking up all of his kids in an attempt to apologize to them for the past, to ask for their forgiveness. He said, I, I know I can't make things right, I can't change things that have happened, but I, I ask you to forgive me. And his kids, who were all grown now with families of their own, were skeptical at first. But over time, he won them all over, except for Daisy. Daisy said she would never forgive. Her father got sick. 
ended up living just eight houses down the street from Daisy with one of her sisters. But she never visited him. She never spoke to him again as long as he lived. Daisy was determined not to be like her dad, and she never touched a drop of alcohol, but she terrorized her family in other ways. It was the Great Depression, and it was a problem with six mouths to feed, and she would scream at her children, Why did I have you stupid kids anyway? You've ruined my life. And Some nights she would whip all of her kids, just knowing that they had to have done something wrong, even if she hadn't caught them at it. Her daughter, Margaret, said you couldn't apologize to her. One time I tried to tell her I was sorry about something I was done, and she screamed at me, don't say you're sorry. If you were sorry, you wouldn't have done it in the first place. And Margaret, she vowed to be different from her mother. Her mother who would never apologize, would never soften. But she had struggles in her own life. One of her sons, Michael, gave her fits during the 1960s. He became a hippie. She didn't like the way he dressed or the way he talked or the way he let his hair grow out. She didn't like the fact that he smoked pot. So she threatened him and she scolded him and she called the police on him and she, she reported him to a judge. She wrote him out of her will. Nothing changed. Nothing worked. So she kicked him out of the house and she told him, I never want to see you again as long as I live. As far as anyone knows, she has not ever seen him again. Michael, who's Philip Yancey's friend, he wanted to be different from his mother. And that quest led him from one woman to another and another, and then from one marriage to another, and then from one divorce after another, each one harsher and more rancorous than the one before. And Michael became an angry, bitter, hard-hearted person, just like his mother just like his grandmother who had started the whole cycle because she refused to forgive her dying father. Ungrace was handed down from generation to generation to generation. And Yancey says, like a spiritual defect in the family DNA, ungrace gets passed on in an unbroken chain. Jesus says, here's a new command. Love each other. And we think, Jesus, that's, it is so hard. It's so hard to, to, to love people who are ungrateful and ungraceful, who are unforgiving and unkind and unaccepting and unloving. And you know what Jesus says to us? I think he says, as hard as it is, it's better than the alternative. It's so much better than living with bitterness and ungrace that eats you up and gets spread like a virus from one person to another. Grace breaks the cycle. Grace breaks the cycle. Grace that gets lived out in forgiveness, even if that forgiveness is not acknowledged. Grace that gets lived out in love, even if that love is not reciprocated. Grace that gets lived out in acceptance, 
that may never be returned. Grace breaks the cycle. Even though it's never acknowledged, never reciprocated, never returned, grace breaks the cycle. But we've got to know this. Grace is expensive. If we decide to extend grace to people who are hard to love, it may be the most expensive Christmas gift we ever give because grace requires a death. Grace requires a death. Think about it. It it wasn't enough for Jesus just to be born into this earth. It wasn't enough for Him just to teach. It wasn't enough for Him just to demonstrate God's love. It wasn't enough for Him to show the world by the way that He lived what God is really like. It wasn't enough. He had to die. And it was in His death that we ultimately see what grace is. And what grace does. Now, now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not telling you that you have to die. I'm saying that something has to die. It may be some pride. Or some resentment. Some memories. Some hard feelings. Some hurts. It may be some slight. Some offense. It may be the desire to get even, the desire to keep score. It may be the desire to keep our distance. But something's got to die. Maybe you're a student and your parents are divorced. During the holidays, you bounce back and forth between one house and the other. And you love your mom, you can't stand your dad. Or you love your dad, and you can't stand your mom. doesn't really matter. Maybe they've gone on and remarried other people and There's all that awkwardness. Well, what do your parents deserve the least from you but need the most? Give that to them. It may surprise you to learn that your parents long for your acceptance. Your step-parents do too. Or maybe you're grown and your parents are older and and trying to get through to them is like talking to a rock. They, they don't care. It doesn't register with them. They don't feel it. So what? Grace doesn't require them to care. Grace doesn't require them to register or to feel it. And they may never change. But you can change. You can give them exactly what they don't deserve but need the most. Just like your Heavenly Father did for you. Or maybe you've got to deal with an ex-spouse. And because it's Christmas, everybody smiles. But everybody's defensive. And everybody watches every word. And everybody's watching their back. What would it look like to bring grace into that relationship? What do they not deserve but need from you? Or maybe it's the in-laws. Oh, my goodness. you got to travel. It's six hours. And we got to spend three whole days. And it feels like three weeks. I mean, 
I mean, it's one of those deals where you start packing the car the day before you have to go home. Honey, I just want us to be ready. We're not you. We can get the, you know, you sleep with your shoes on. So in the morning when it's the, the, the day to go home, we can get up and get on the road. We want to get out there early. What would it look like to bring grace into a situation like that? A situation full of tension like that. Hey, it's just three days. Jesus had to come to this world and live 33 years. You just got to live through three days. And probably nobody's going to try to crucify you at the end of it. Where in our world is there a need for grace? Who in our world needs grace and everything inside us says no? But God says yes. This year I want you to spend more than you ever planned to spend. I want you to give the gift of grace to that person who deserves it the least but needs it the most. So who is it? Who needs to be understood? Forgiven, listened to. Who needs a physical touch? Who needs some eye-to-eye contact? What is it that they need this year? Now, I'm not talking about what they deserve. What is it that they need that we can bring? Who can we show grace to? They may never change. Are you prepared for that? They may never change. They may never recognize that something is different about us. It doesn't matter. It's not about them. It's about grace. Hey, maybe that's what needs to die. Maybe our expectation that someone will change because we have. Grace always requires a death. And let's face it. The biggest barrier to grace is our butt. All our excuses start with the word but. But he, but she, but they. I mean, you gotta, you got to hear my story. I tried to do this, but he. I, I tried to explain, but she. I, I tried to tell them what, but, but they. All of our excuses that start with the word but, are overshadowed at Christmas. Because Christmas is not but he, but she, but they. Christmas is but God. My favorite verse in the entire Bible is Romans 5.8. You can have John 3.16. That's a good one. I love that one too. But Romans 5.8 is my favorite. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But God. God demonstrated His grace, His own grace, while we were still sinners. While I was still unforgiving and ungrateful. While I was still unaccepting and unloving. While we were still in our sin, Christ died for us. But God, but God demonstrates His love before we even know it's there. And I want you to know all of my but he, but she, but they, all of that dissolves in the face of but God. 
So what needs to die for us to be able to live with grace? The desire for revenge? The, uh, the need to punish somebody? The, the drive to make sure that somebody doesn't get away with something? The need to be the judge? <laughs> what needs to die? Maybe you're like me. I hope you're not. But maybe you're like me and you, you've always got to be right. you always got to correct people who get their facts messed up. You always got to get in the last word, tell the last joke, have the most clever remark. But enough about me, let's talk about you. Maybe it's a need to make sure that people understand your side of the story. Maybe, you know, people that just rehearse their story to anybody that'll listen. You know, no, never mind. You, you won't know what I was about to say. You come ask me later. Maybe I'll tell you. Bring a dollar. Maybe it's the need to make sure people are listening to your side of the story. Maybe that's what needs to die. Maybe it's all those things that we try to extract out of other people. Maybe that's what needs to die. Hey, listen. Death always comes first. The death always comes first. It always precedes the offer of grace. I've got to see and know what it is I'm trying to extract from other people so that it can die. Otherwise, all I will do is offer a trade. And if, you know, if you do this, I'll do that. And if it's a trade, it's not grace. Well, I, I, I tried to be nice to him. It didn't work. I, I tried to forgive, but it didn't work. I, I tried to put the past behind me, and it did not work. I did my part. They didn't do theirs. They didn't change. That's because you were trying to do a trade. And grace isn't a trade. That's got to die. What Jesus offers us is not a trade. What Jesus says to us is, what I've done for you is always there for you to receive, no matter what. Even if you reject me, even if you deny me, even if you dishonor me, it's always there. The offer stands. Now, inside your bulletin this morning, there was a green sheet of paper. The sermon notes are on one side. I want you to turn it over on the back side. And if you didn't get one of those, will, will somebody help me out? There's some extras on the chair, the red chair back there by this door. Tony, will you help me out? Some extra. Raise your hand up if you didn't get one. I want everybody to have one. And what you're going to see on the back of this piece of paper is a, is a, is a picture of a gift. And this is, this is the takeaway for you today. It all comes down to this. On, on that piece of paper with the gift on it, there are three blanks. And one of them says, who? One says, how? And the other one says, what needs to die?
I want you to fill in those blanks. I want you to fill in those blanks. Who is it in your world that needs grace from you? And how can you extend that grace to them? And listen, I'm not talking about ten people or five people or even two. I'm talking about just one. And I realize that maybe because of who you're with this morning, you, you might have to write in code. You might, maybe, maybe you could just put some initials. You know, maybe you just make a mental note, but I'm asking you, please do not leave here this morning without coming up with someone who needs your grace. Without, without understanding how you can extend it and, and, and understanding what needs to die in order for that to happen. Please take a moment and do this. Now I want you to carry that piece of paper with you until you give that gift. Just stick it in your wallet, your purse, your pocket, whatever. I want you to carry it with you until you give that gift. And I realize that I may have just asked you to give the most expensive gift that you've ever given. Because grace requires a death. But imagine the impact of a hundred gifts of grace going out into our community. Imagine the impact of your one gift of grace going out into your family. How would your workplace change if that was a, a coworker whose name you wrote down? If you extended the gift of grace to that person, how would the workplace change? At Christmas, God brought grace back. And He gave us everything we need to bring grace back to graceless relationships. And it's not just a Christmas wish. It's not a dream. It's real. And it's everything we could hope for at Christmas. Bow your heads, please. Close your eyes.